Good afternoon. I hope you all enjoyed your lunch. This is the uh, final lap of today's conference. This is the, the free speech afternoon. We're going to have a flash talk followed by a panel moderated by my colleague, John Samples. But before that, we are going to have a brief presentation from Alan Dickerson, who is the legal director of the Institute for Free Speech. I hope you'll all join me in welcoming him. Ah, well, thank you very much. It's uh, always a privilege to be at the Cato Institute, and I applaud their wisdom in giving a lawyer exactly 15 minutes to get to the point. Um, so I want to start by uh, just sort of going over the, the name of this. We're, of course, talking about online ad regulation, necessary or a danger to free speech. And I wanted to keep you all in a certain amount of tension about how I was going to come out on that issue. Uh, but I see that you've been handed a one-pager by my colleague, Luke Wachub, entitled Regulating the Internet, a Dangerous Trend for Free Speech, which kind of gives away the game. So I want to very quickly talk about the pitfalls from a free speech perspective of online regulation, but in a very narrow part of the massive market that we've been talking about today. And that is specifically in the area of paid political advertisements. Um, and I'm hoping that at the end of the, the next, I probably have 14 minutes left now, you'll come away with a sense of um, some general thoughts, uh, a little bit of insight into what legislative proposals look like right now, um, and appreciation for two specific points. Uh, one being that this is, this is very technical stuff, um, and that in particular, efforts to analogize to the ways in which we regulate political speech and broadcast or radio or, or those sort of um, contexts is somewhat inapt. And secondly, that because political speech is such a small uh, slice of this overall enormous market, that, that the dangers of chill by means of government regulation are uh, perhaps somewhat higher than you might expect. So I, uh, I stole this picture from NetChoice, and I want to give them credit for it, because um, there's absolutely no way I could have put this together. But this is a, a sense of the ecosystem that exists for the purchasing of ads online. Uh, and I mentioned it for a few reasons. One, uh, I encourage you to go back to the source and look at it, because there's obviously a ton of tiny little pieces there. But what you're going to see here is that this is not the, the situation you would have in, you know, you go down to your local TV station, you purchase your, your political ad, and then they run it in a particular time slot. This is a highly complex market where uh, the one-to-one -one correlation between the purchaser of the ad and the eventual platform putting the ad out to a final consumer is not necessarily linear and is not necessarily clear. Um, and that's important for a few reasons. Um, one is because uh, it, it's, it's difficult to, again, apply that sort of linear model of you've got a candidate or you've got a non-property or someone else who wants to speak to a particular consumer in a particular geographic area. They purchase the ad, good to go, easy record keeping. It's not like that. It's this. It's highly complex. Um, and secondly, it's that you know, we also have a change in how ads work. Um, and there's a lot of people in the room who could talk about this better than I could. But, you know, for instance, in the way we regulate political ads generally, you know, you'll have things that are geared towards the broadcast space. But the range of potential ads are much larger here. I mean, how do you, how do you ad uh, adopt an on-publication uh, on disclaimer, which may be required, you know, those you know, stand-by-your-ad type provisions, in an ad that's designed to fit on an Apple Watch? Um, you know, the range of potential time is very different in the sense that you have Instead of just your standard 15 and 30 second ads that you might get on a cable station, you have you know, six second ads and you have 90 second ads and you have 90 minute ads. So the range of potential products that a regulator has to adapt 
regulation two is quite a bit larger and as importantly, changing constantly. So what does all this mean for free speech? Uh, I've got a couple just general thoughts here. Uh, the first is that the, the instinct to regulate at choke points has particular dangers. Uh, again, go back to the broadcast analogy. There are obvious places there where you want to regulate. You want to regulate at the point of sale, where the person's coming into the broadcast station and that broadcast station is accepting the money, putting the ad out, and keeping whatever records are required. Well, as we saw in the previous, in the previous slide, that's harder here because the connection between that original purchase by the person who wants to do the speaking and the eventual seeing of the ad by the person to whom one is communicating is not necessarily direct. There's not necessarily that meeting of the minds. And so there's a real danger of, um, there's a real danger of, of chill there because uh, the costs can get out of hand really quickly. Second is that you know, if, you, if you treat an ad as though it were a TV ad, you're, you're eliminating all of those products that don't necessarily conform. The example I use here is, the, again, the standby your ad provisions that exist in federal, federal regulations. So if you take out a TV ad, you have to say things like, I'm so-and-so and I approve this message, et cetera. Well, what do you do, again, about that Apple smartwatch little image? You know, if, if you are literally barred by the law from running an ad that doesn't include something that is technically impossible in an internet context, you have essentially banned that form of advertisement. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily intended in a regulatory regime, but it is a, a downstream effect that can happen. And similarly, and, and I think this is really the crux of what I'm hoping you'll take away from this, is that there's a real danger of, um, there's a real danger of chill. And by chill, what I mean is the ways in which government action will lessen the amount of speech out there in the market, not necessarily by banning it, not necessarily by directly taxing it or creating a licensing regime or doing any of the sort of direct things we think about as censorship, but by creating subtle and insidious costs that make the speech simply not worth it. And that's especially dangerous here because of the amounts of money that are involved in two senses. One, if you're Google and you're dealing with untold billions of dollars in ad revenue over a 10-year period or over a four-year election cycle for the presidency, this is a drop in the bucket. And if the regulatory requirements for accepting these ads outweigh that economic gain to your corporation, you're just not going to take the ads. And that's not a hypothetical. This has happened in at least two states where Massachusetts, not Massachusetts, sorry, don't want to malign the wrong state, uh, where Washington and Maryland uh, both impose very substantial burdens, uh, Maryland I'll talk about in a moment, uh, that essentially made Google exit the market. And if Google, Google decided not to sell political ads in those two states because of the regulatory burdens. And if Google isn't in a position to shoulder the regulatory burdens, again, as we'll see, you're essentially wiping out an entire way of communicating between, uh, between whether it's politicians or parties or, or advocacy groups and the American public. Um, and that's precisely the sort of chill that those of us who are First Amendment types worry about. So I'm going to leave that and go on to the big elephant in the room, or I suppose the bear in the room. Um, a, lot of this, a, lot, a lot of the instincts for uh, regulating come out of, I think, a fear about uh, untoward influence of one form or another. Right now, that is Russia or other um, national security, uh, shall we say, adversaries. I think they call them near-peer adversaries, if you read the national security strategy. Um, I, I think that there's, there's a couple points to be made here. I mean, one is that 
if you're talking about the national security or intelligence apparatus of a major international power, we can wonder whether disclosure regimes enforced by the Federal Election Commission's ability to civilly sue you um, or the ability of a, of a Maryland electoral regulator to require particular disclaimers on ads is going to be a particularly effective deterrent. Um, my own view is that if you want to stop Russia from influencing our elections, you stop them from doing that the same way you stop them from doing anything else. You use the national security apparatus, you sanction them, you engage in intelligence operations, you build up uh, military deterrence in a way that makes it no longer worthwhile. Because the alternative, regulation at deeply granular levels of political speech, has real, um, real effects on Americans' ability to speak with each other that are out of proportion to, to, the, to the advantages from a national security standpoint. So here are a couple of things that people talk about. Uh, one, you know, requiring that ads that, that talk about public affairs or elections are paid for in the United States dollars. Um, I'm going to pretty much gloss over that one because uh, it, it is possible to change rubles into dollars, and I feel fairly certain that the intelligence apparatus of the Russian Federation is aware of how to do that. Um, Micro-targeting, I think, is a harder one. Uh, this is, you know, the idea that you would regulate based on who's going to eventually see the ad. Uh, I think the concern here is that a lot of the activity that you're talking about here is not necessarily paid ads. You know, it is things that are organic activity that's point out, not necessarily vote for or vote against this candidate, but stuff about issues of public affairs. Um, a lot of what Russia did in the last election was not paid advertisements. A lot of it was directed at Black Lives Matter issues or other, um, uh, shall we say, pressure points in, in the current uh, D debate within the American Republic on how we want to govern ourselves. And uh, I think there's a danger, potentially, in regulation that forces the creation of databases and um, uh, regulatory agency approaches that by, necess by necessity would require the building of um, specific capacity directed at those interest groups, figuring out who belongs to them, figuring out who's being targeted in that way. Uh, I'm not sure those are lists that some of us who care about civil rights want necessarily existing. So, uh, and then an extensive donor disclosure and other sorts of disclosure requirements, which I'd like to talk about in a specific context. Um, so Maryland, I think I, I mentioned this earlier, this is one of the things that caused Google to exit the market, at least temporarily, um, passed a law that did all the things that I was just talking about. It um, required that ads be purchased uh, in US currency, uh, it broadly, re broadly regulated internet speech, not just on the basis of political advocacy in a candidate sense, but also anything that was related to a candidate or a ballot measure. Uh, speech with the, the Supreme Court in another context is called unconstitutionally vague. Um, and it also required, and this is I think the, kit, the, the real kicker here, very substantial uh, burdens in terms of record, keep, record keeping and disclosure. Um, in particular that, that those who were selling internet ads had to keep a file, a public file, of who was purchasing it, who was, who was seeing it, how much was being paid, very granular information on each transaction. What ended up happening uh, was that there was a lawsuit by the Washington Post and a number of other uh, entities, which obviously have internet ads and put them on, the, uh, on their websites. And what they said was the, a couple things. And uh, one of them is, again, these burdens that I'm talking about, the fact that you know, they want to be able to accept this revenue, but the burdens that were being imposed were so costly in, in real terms that they essentially buried whatever margin there might be in accepting that speech. Um, 
And the legal argument was essentially that, you know, it is one thing to go to the party or the PAC or the nonprofit or the whomever, the individual, and say, if you want to come, at, if you want to come in and talk to Americans in this way, you've got to keep certain records or file certain things. It's another thing to go to the Washington Post and say, you know, you as the intermediary have to keep all this information. And what the court, what a district court said in Maryland was, you know, because that is compelled speech by the Washington Post, because it imposes these type of, of indirect burdens on someone who's not actually doing the speaking, it's subject to strict scrutiny and it fails. Um, so you, you see again the, 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 an attempt to, to essentially create doctrine about how we deal with what's essentially an economics problem. The problem of, you know, if you're posing, uh, again, costs through a regulatory function that's gonna swamp this very small amount of the overall ad budget of big organizations, they're simply gonna refuse to accept those type of ads. And I am running out of time, so I want to make you all aware that this is not the only attempt along these lines. Uh, Congress, and in particular the House of Representatives, uh, is considering very similar regulatory burdens in the federal context. Um, in particular, uh, again, currency restrictions, uh, requirements that, that um, online platforms keep precisely the same sort of granular information that broadcasters are required to despite, again, the differences between uh, the, the model of advertisements and the broadcast versus the, uh, the internet space, and regardless of the very important marginal differences in cost, uh, both in terms of the revenue that's coming in for any particular ad and the costs of, and burdens of record keeping for that particular ad and how different they are in those two circumstances. So that, that's currently pending in the Congress, um, and I, I wanna conclude in my last one minute and 47 seconds uh, by, by giving you uh, all a sense of how this all plays out. There, there's always been a, a real tension in the regulation of political speech in terms of how do we determine what is political. And, and, this, is, uh, and this is what I, what I do all day. Uh, there's 50 years of, of Supreme Court precedent about how you draw these lines. And there's a lot of disagreement, good faith disagreement among smart people about what should be in that bucket and what should be out. And the, the traditional way of doing it is to say, no, there has to be some connection between uh, the speech and a particular election or a particular outcome of an election. And that forms a sort of nexus where the government has an interest, where it can go in and require this sort of transparency that we'd usually be a little bit concerned about um, in another context. But what, what's increasingly happened is that that's hard. You know, figuring out whether someone's saying vote for or vote against a candidate, that, that's, that's difficult to tell in any particular ad. Um, and I could, I could tell all of you stories at the reception about some of the cases I've litigated with very, very strange examples of whether an ad was in or out. But HR1 does this on the sole basis of whether or not you name a candidate. Um, you don't have to name them in the context of, of X or Y, 35 seconds. Um, but whether or not you've got, um, whether or not you have in fact um, simply mentioned one. So I have three ads I'm gonna show you in the 25 seconds remaining to me. Um, this is one from, a, uh, from MedPage Today, which is an online provider of continuing medical education. And it talks about a, a speech that's gonna be given by a particular woman. But because it talks about Donald J. Trump's plan to fix a particular issue as part of this educational program, this is gonna be treated as a political ad. Uh, similar here, you've got a Seattle Times article that happens to be sponsored. This is a straight news article, but because it mentions uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, it's treated as a political ad. And finally, and I'm nine seconds over, this is a, a commercial ad for training to get uh, approval for a concealed carry permit. 
And again, because a member of Congress is, is, is mentioned, um, in this case, Nancy Pelosi, is treated as a campaign ad. So the worry, again, is that uh, these costs will not be commensurate to the burdens um, or advantages of taking the ads in the first place, and you'll end up chilling a lot of political speech unintentionally. Thank you very much.